We have read the entirety of Psalm 51, so we'll not take the time to read it again, but let's just pause for a moment and ask for God's help as we look at this passage of Scripture together. Our Lord and Savior, we are thankful for the grace that is extended to us, the forgiveness that we can find because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're thankful, Lord, this morning that we have before us an example of what it means to confess, to repent, to seek your cleansing. We're thankful for the promise that your cleansing comes through the goodness, through the grace that is found in Christ. Help us to rejoice in that this morning. Help us to be humbled and recognize our own need for repentance, even this morning as we look at David's words through your spirit. In Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, if you keep up with golf, or really even if you don't, you probably know that there was a significant event in the life of Tiger Woods just recently, just a few weeks ago. And it was significant in part because of the the history that kind of led up to this. Uh, While we were traveling on the road before we moved here, I had a sermon that I I preached regularly that my introductory, uh, my introduction was about Tiger Woods as a positive example. And then all of a sudden in 2009, I had to change that illustration. <laughs> um, so if you, if you followed all of the saga that took place, you know that in 2009, Tiger Woods, the pro golfer, found himself at the center of this great controversy Um, being unfaithful to his marriage, inappropriate relationships with other women, um, even the the, uh, uh, use of of drugs uh, for the pain, uh, having gotten addicted to pain medications because of all his back problems. And then the the back problems persisted, and there's been this hiatus from golf for a while, and then in recent years, he's come back and just recently won the Masters. It was really interesting to watch the press coverage after his win at the Masters tournament. A lot of news sources were using this theological term. So so theology kind of blasted its way into the headlines because everyone was saying the BBC, Newsweek, Washington Post, PBS was all reporting this as Tiger Woods' redemption. Well, that's interesting. That's interesting that that when our world wants to to talk about this this overwhelming success, this comeback, this, this, this great break back into the success that he once enjoyed, they, they pull out of their tool bag this archaic theological word while not even fully recognizing what it means. And so it was being reported again and again, Tiger Woods' redemption. It fallen on the heels of his, his confession, his hiatus from golf, and then his comeback. But was it really... Was it really a redemption? Well, we could add to the chronicle of of Tiger Woods numerous other celebrity apologies, couldn't we? Right? So it was Mel Gibson who was arrested for DUI, and then the video sparked this outrage about some of the things that he said when he was intoxicated. 
course, here in Austin, everybody knows the story of Lance Armstrong, who was accused of and then later admitted to in 2013 his, his doping controversy and admitted, you know, I view this situation as a, as a lie. I've repeated a, a lot of times. He had to apologize to his organization. He was then stripped of many of his endorsement deals and, and kind, of, kind of hanging his head, kind of slid off the scene for, for quite some time and then eventually even was stripped of his medal. You know, we could add to that saga, right, these, these, these uh, celebrities who are, who are publicly shamed, they're publicly humiliated, and then they make this, this confession, this, this apology to the world. We could add to that list David Letterman, Bill Clinton, Alec Baldwin, Kobe Bryant, Paula Dean, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer. We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? with all of these celebrity apologies. Well, we have before us this morning a text of Scripture that in some ways could be called a celebrity apology. I mean, David was quite the celebrity in his day. But there's something very different about what we see in Psalm 51 than what we see from the celebrity apologies that I, that I just mentioned. Now, some of those apologies were decent. Some were downright pathetic. A few were sincere. Most were sincerely written by a highly paid PR firm. But David's confession, his, his prayer of repentance, is so genuine, it is so meaningful, it is so God-informed that it provides the inspired standard by which we measure our own repentance. So you have open before you, I trust. If you do not, please open your Bible, Psalm 51, and we will make our way through this passage. You probably have a heading there under Psalm 51, something like this, a prayer of repentance to the chief musician. And then you perhaps have another title, subtitle, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time reiterating the account of David's sin. Many of you, many of you know it very well, but just kind of as, as a quick refresher of our memories, you remember that David the king had sent his armies off to war, remained in the city of Jerusalem. And, and one day as he looked out from his rooftop, he, he sees a woman and he lusts after her and he calls her to the palace. He, he is immoral with her and impregnates her. And then to cover his tracks, he had to do something. And so he, he basically has her husband killed. There was a sophisticated plot in which he tried to get him to come back and sleep with his wife so that it looked like the, the baby was, was uh, legitimate. That was unsuccessful. And so what he does is he orchestrates a battle where her husband is killed. He takes Bathsheba as wife so that it looks like it's on the up and up. But God knew, right? And God sends this prophet Nathan to tell this picturesque story 
that, that really angers David. And when, when the, the, the hammer falls, when David pronounces judgment on this man in the story, then Nathan waves his bony finger, I can almost picture it, in the face of David. And he says, you are the man in this story. And at that point, the conviction of the Holy Spirit rains down on David's head. And David repents. This is a glimpse into David's heart after having been confronted about his sin. He repents and he, and he records this repentance in this inspired psalm, which teaches us how we ought to think about our own sin and repentance. You see, God's people find joy through repentance. God's people find joy through repentance. Now, what is repentance? We learn a great deal about it from this passage of Scripture, and it starts with admitting our sin. Repentance requires first that we admit our sin. You'll notice that in beginning in the last part of verse 1, David treats his sin very seriously. Now, we have a tendency to minimize our sin, right? We have cutesy little names for it. We have the nice things that we call it. We don't really want to own up to the fact that we are sin. We speak of it in terms of a mistake or a flaw or a bad judgment or a bad choice. Now, sin is certainly all of those things, but it is much, much more. And so David here in this passage is in no way trying to minimize or excuse our sin, his sin. You don't find David saying, well, well, she shouldn't have been bathing on the rooftop. You don't find David saying, well, you know, I, I've been under a lot of stress lately. And you know, being this king, this is, this is difficult, and I was, just, I was just acting out. You don't find David saying, well, I have a, a sex addiction. You don't find David saying, well, I did this because of something that was done wrong to me. You don't find David saying any of that. You find David owning his sin, and he does so with very specific terms. Notice these terms with me. At the end of verse 1, he uses a term to describe his sin. What is that term that he uses at the end of verse 1? Transgression, right? Now, this word transgression, he also uses it again in verse 3, refers to deliberately crossing a boundary. So, if you use a sports analogy, right, there is a, there is a line. And when you cross that line, when you put your foot across that line, the referee is going to blow the whistle. Toot, toot. You're out of line, right? You, you've committed a violation, all right? That's the image that the word transgression is, that there is a line that God has drawn. I remember a 
number of years ago uh, when we were in the gymnasium at the church where we were ministering. And I remember one particular young set of parents telling their little one, it, we're in the, ba- in the ball court, right? And he, he wanted him to stay in a certain area, and there was a ball court line right there. And he said, see that line? Don't cross it. And I remember very vividly that when the dad wasn't looking, the boy went like this. He walked right up to the edge. He looked to see if dad was looking. And what did he do? He put his toes across the line. Right? That's exactly what this word means. It means God said there's a line, and I'm just going to cross that line. It's an act of rebellion. That's what the word transgression means. Then he uses another word in verse 2. Can you spot it? He uses two words, but the first one that he uses to describe his sin is what? Iniquity. Some of you are looking at your Bibles. All right, let's, let's do it again. In verse 2, what is the first word that he uses in reference to his sin? Iniquity. There we go. All right. Iniquity suggests perverseness or twistedness. All right? it, is, it is taking that which is straight that is given by God and twisting it or, or perverting it. Do you realize that most of our sin are taking something good that God has created and twisting it, misappropriating it, using it wrongly? Right? So there are many good gifts that God has given, has given us. And when we use those wrongly, when we use those in a way that God has not designed, we are twisting it. Now, David's particular sin was a sexual sin, which is actually a, a perfect example of what we're talking about here. God has given the intimacy of, of sex to be in the context of a marriage, one man, one woman committed for life. And when we take it outside of that context, we are twisting it, we are perverting it we are misusing it in a way that god has not designed that's what this word is 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 touching on this idea of twisting something that god has given us that's that's iniquity and then of course he uses the generic word that we often use sin he uses that later in verse two he uses it again in verse three and in verse nine the word sin specifically relates to falling short of god's standard right we talk about romans three twenty three for all have sinned right and fall short of the glory of god so god has set a standard of righteousness and we fall short of that that's what the word sin means he uses another word in verse four do you see it there what other word does he use in verse four in reference to his sin evil this is a word of perspective right so you'll see often in the old testament when it refers to it was evil in the sight of this is a word of perspective okay it is actually is a little bit less objective because it can be used in reference to man who sees something as evil, even if it's good. It's a perspective word. All right? So evil is a word that refers to how God sees sin in, in, in all of its ugliness, in all of its hideous, grotesque, repulsive nature. It reminds us that God is against sin, and sin is against God. 
Now, when you see these words, you do not see any soft pedaling. You do not see David saying, I, I made a boo-boo. I, I messed up. You see him hitting his sin head on, and that is the first thing that we must understand when it comes to repentance. That is, our sin is serious. And for us to admit our sin means that we must admit that it is serious, that it is a violation of God's law, that it is a twisting of what God has said, that it is hideous in his sight. Often we'll hear people say things like, well, nobody's perfect. In an attempt to belittle, to think less of our sin. Our sin is serious. But our sin is serious because of who it is against. Notice with me, please, verse 4. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil. Now, David does not mean that he didn't sin against others. We know from the account that David did sin against others. Right? What he is emphasizing is it is firmly fixed in his mind that his sin was first and foremost against God. Someone has described sin this way. Sin is cosmic treason. It's against God. Political libertarianism has some legitimate biblical points. But the mistake that many of a libertarian bent make is overplaying autonomy when it comes to considering morality. So the thinking goes something like this. Well, if it doesn't hurt anyone else, you should be allowed to do it. Okay, well, that can quickly run off the rails, all right, because not everything that is harmful to others causes immediate and visible harm. Some moral wrongs are so subtle that an activity already becomes woven into a culture before the harm is even realized. But, but more importantly than that, Christians should be thinking about their actions first and foremost in terms of how they relate to the lawgiver of the universe. The law stands fixed. And yes, David sinned against others. Clearly, he, can, he, he sinned against Bathsheba. Clearly, he, can, he sinned uh, against her husband. Clearly, he sinned even against the entire kingdom. But David says, I really sinned against God, the lawgiver. A few years ago, again, in our previous ministry, I was sitting in my office one day, and I hear screaming coming from outside. So I look out my window, and way out at the front of the parking lot, a few hundred yards away, was a car parked in our parking lot with a, a young lady inside and a young man standing over her, and they are duking it out. Now, she is like kind of pinned in the car, and he is swinging at her. And I'm, she is screaming to high heaven. And so I looked out the window and I saw this. And of course, I just sat in my office. No, you, you, know, right? you, you know me better than that, right? So um, uh, Leah's mom was our administrative assistant at the time. We called them secretaries back then. 
on my way out the door, I said, call 911, tell them there's a domestic dispute in the parking lot. And I took off running, bolting out to the front of the parking lot where this, this guy and this gal were duking it out in this car. And as I'm approaching, I'm yelling at this guy. Now, I get it. I'm not a big dude, all right? I'm not, like, intimidating or anything. He was actually bigger than me. But I'm yelling, and I'm coming at him full bore, all right? So clearly, I was itching for a fight. I hadn't gotten a good fight in a while. So, like, clearly, I was going to go after him. And that was enough to, to put him on his heels, and he took off. He, left, he let her go, and he took off. Well, you know me. I, I'm not going to settle for that, right? I told him, sit down right there. The cops are coming. No, of course, he would have nothing to do with it. He kept going. So what did I do? I followed him naturally. I'm not going to let this dude get away with this, right? So I'm walking through. Now, he's, he's like at a, you know, in a mall walk. He's not running, but he's, he's moving, moving along to get out of there. And I'm following him on my phone with 911, giving him a blow-by-blow. And, of course, the dispatcher's saying, you know, now don't follow him. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's your job to tell me that. I get it, okay? I'm still following him, right? So he jumps over the fence, and I jump over a fence, and now we're walking along the interstate. And I said, now, now be sure to realize I'm in the red collared shirt. He's in the red T-shirt, right? And so I'm following this guy. We, I follow him for several hundred yards down the side of the interstate, and then he ducks into some bushes. Well, I'm smart enough to know that I'm not going to get in there where I can't see him, and he's going to double back and, and hurt me. So I'm like, okay, at this point, I'm done, right? I'm just going to stay right here and wait for the cops. And so he, he goes on and, and goes wherever he goes. Cops come, of course, about two minutes later. Come on, you guys are late. You missed all the action, right? But, but, uh, but so they, look, they start looking for him. I go back to the office. A couple hours later, one of, the, one of the police officers come and says, hey, we need you to ID this guy. So I get in the back of the patrol, the patrol car, not in handcuffs, just in the back of the patrol car, and they take me down to the, to the Jiffy store, and they say, hey, is that the guy? I'm like, yeah, that's the guy. So I ID'd him. Will you believe that that woman did not press charges against him. Now, I will tell, tell you that that's not uncommon for battered women, all right? But, but I was so mad. I was like, you what? You didn't press charges against him? And so he got off. I will tell you this, though. There are certain things that he could have done in that situation that it really wouldn't matter if she pressed charges or not. Like, if that situation had escalated and gotten worse, right, there would, he would be in handcuffs on his way to jail, and she could say all day long, well, I'm not going to press charges. And guess what? They'd be like, I don't care. Right? There are certain crimes that you can do that, that somebody can say, well, I'm not going to press charges. You're still under arrest, and you're still being prosecuted. Sorry. Why? Because you violated the law. It's not about what did you do to that person. It's about the fact that you have violated the law. You have now offended the law. A lot of times when we um, think about our sin, we think about it in terms of, well, it's okay. You ever say that? Somebody asks you for forgiveness and you say, it's okay. Well, no, it's not okay, Right? We, if we sin against someone else, we have sinned against an image bearer, one who bears the image of God. And guess what? It's not okay. We violated the law. David says, against you, God, 
I've sinned. My sin was against you. We must admit that the object of our sin is God. And if no one else catches us, and if no one else knows about it, and we think our sin doesn't hurt anyone else, it's still wrong because it goes against the lawgiver. We see also in this passage that when we admit sin, we are admitting the perversity of our own nature. So notice with me, please, verse 5 and 6. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin did my mother conceive me. You desire truth in the inward parts. In the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Our nature. Now, David doesn't mean that from... from what David is, reminds us of here in verse 5 is that, that from his very birth, yea, even before his birth, right? He was a sinner. By the way, sidebar, you see a little note there, right? At what point are we a person bearing the image of God and guilty before God? Conception. Just That's, that's for free. You don't have to pay extra for that, right? Um, but coming back to the text... Um, he was a sinner even from his very conception. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Sin touches every part of us. It corrupts our thoughts, our emotions, our wills, our actions. We are totally depraved would be the theological phrase for it. All right? Now, it does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be but we are thoroughly affected by sin. Now, the world tells us, what? Never apologize for who you are. But the biblical perspective is, who I am is precisely the problem. As the church father Tertullian once said, I was born for no other end but to repent. When we would play ball in high school, and I think guys still do this, right? You make a mistake on the ball court, like you, you throw a bad pass and your, and your teammate misses it, and you say what? You thump on your chest and you go, my bad, my bad, right? <laughs> That's not what repentance is. It's not just saying, I was wrong. There's actually more to it than that. It's not just admitting our sin, but it, it requires acknowledging God's place. Now, this has already been touched on, but it's further developed here when we think about admitting our sin, uh, repenting, it causes us to see God for who he is. Notice with me the last part of verse 4, once again, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Our sin is rightly judged by the just judge of the universe. In fact, furthermore, Jesus clothed himself in our humanity so that he could take on himself the wrath that is due to our sin. That alone should make us ashamed of our sin. And then he says in verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. You spent much time talking to unbelievers, atheists in particular. You know that God's expectations are offensive to the natural man. 
They are odious. In their mind, God has no right to regulate their conduct, to tell them how to live their life, to rule them. But here's the thing, my Christian friend. When you and I sin, particularly when we sin in a way that is presumptuous, we know we're sinning and we make a conscious choice. When we sin, we are being functional atheists. We are in that moment saying God's word does not matter. It's nothing less than saying we wish God did not exist. I wish his laws would disappear. And so when we repent, we're saying not just that I was wrong, but that God is right. We must acknowledge God's verdict is right. He is the just judge, and we must acknowledge the rightness of his standard. It is not just saying that we, we might be wrong, but that God is right. And then we see repentance, lastly, is asking for mercy. Mercy which we do not deserve. We see this for, in, in verses 1 and 2 already, but we see it repeated again throughout. So if we go back to verses 1 and 2 and, and read those again, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he, he says in, in verse 1, the last part, blot out my transgression. Okay, so this idea of blotting out refers to a debt that must be paid. You remember, they didn't have erasers in the ancient world. And so when a debt had been relieved, they would take a, a, an, ink, an ink mark and they would blot over that debt. That would be the way they would erase it. So, so you're saying, remove this debt. And then in verse 2, he says, cleanse me. This refers to defilement that would have been caused um, by touching something unclean under, the, under the, rule, the laws of the Old Testament. And then he says, wash me, which refers to the cleansing of dirty clothing. So now if you go down with me to verse 7, David details this need to be forgiven of sin with some very vivid terms. Notice verse 7, he says, purge me with hyssop. Now, you look at that and you say, what in the world is this purging me with hyssop all about. Hyssop was a shrub that had kind of hairy stems on the end, and it could be dipped into a liquid. And, and the, what would happen is in the, in the sacrificial system, the priest would use hyssop to sprinkle blood or to sprinkle water on people who, who were recipients of ceremonial cleansing. Now today, believers find their cleansing in the work of Jesus Christ as it was accomplished on the cross. But in David's mind, this hyssop was, was closely linked to the cleansing of blood, the ceremonial cleansing. And so when David says, purge me with hyssop, what he's saying is, I am defiled. I need to be clean. I need to be washed. Now, you say, we've, we've spent a lot of time in this passage talking about repentance. That doesn't seem very uplifting to me. That doesn't seem very very joyful to me. Isn't all this talk about God's holiness and our sinfulness and, and, and repentance a, a, a bad thing? What is it with little kids in baths? Do you ever, have you ever had one in your home that just, just hates taking a bath? 
I think boys are probably the worst at this, right? Why, why would I want to get cleaned up? I mean, why, why, why don't I get in the bathtub? Come on, Mom. Come on, Dad. And you're sitting there going, this makes no sense. I feel so good after I've gotten a shower. I feel so good after I'm cleaned up and smelling nice. Like, what, what's wrong with this kid that they don't want to get cleansed? Don't they understand that a life of joy and happiness involves getting clean frequently? Right? That's, that's the way we sometimes look at our sin. Like, why would I want to take a bath? I mean, baths are so unpleasant, they're so uncomfortable, you have to take all your clothes off, and then you're cold, and then you jump in, and you finally warm back up, and then you got to use this soap stuff, oh, God, right? When we say that repentance is something that is a, a drudgery, a, a sadness, it is, it, is, it is not something that we really want to focus on sin and repentance, what we're saying is, I don't want to get a bath. It's an immature way of, of looking at our sin. So when we focus on God's holiness, when we see our own sinfulness, yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, it's unpleasant. But it is the avenue to joy. The Financial Times of London, just uh, within recent weeks, published an article. The title of the article was, A Preacher for Trump's America, Joel Osteen and the Prosperity Gospel. Now, as far as I know, this secular author... Uh, unbeliever likely, but seems to have more sense than some people who profess Christianity. So here's some of the things that the article says as he's talking about having visited um, Joel Osteen's church. He says, optimism, hope, destiny, harvest, bounty, these are all Lakewood's buzzwords. Prosperity too. Words that are rarely heard include guilt, shame, sin, Penance and hell. Lakewood is not the kind of church that troubles your conscience. One person he interviewed at the church said this, If you want to feel bad, Lakewood is not the place for you. Most people want to leave church feeling better than when they went in. And the author goes on to say, The market share of U.S. churches run by celebrity prosperity preachers such as Olstein, Creflo Dollar, uh, Kenneth Copeland and Paula White keeps growing. Well, in the interview with Osteen, this author in the Financial Times of London actually pins him down just a little bit. He asks the question, how do you manage to keep sin and redemption out of the Christian message? To which Osteen responds, look, I'm a preacher's son, so I'm an optimist. Life already makes us feel guilty every day. If you keep laying shame on people, they get turned off. And it really interferes with the $15 million advance on your books. That, that was added. That was editorial. All right. He, he goes on by asking, how does telling people to downplay their consciences tally with the New Testament? Osteen smiled awkwardly and said, I preach the gospel, but we're non-denominational, he replied. It's not my aim to dwell on technicalities. I want to help people sleep at night. So sin is now a technicality that makes people feel bad. My friends, we must do business with God's holiness. We must do business with the reality that we are sinners. 
and that the only true avenue to joy is in dealing rightly with our sin. Instead of stomping our foot like a little kid who doesn't want a bath and saying, I won't be clean, we must say, Lord, cleanse me, wash me, purge me. And in that, we understand that God is forgiving. That because of God's holy nature, we need cleansing and it is found, our joy is found in the confidence of receiving mercy. So you may think that a life of repentance is a miserable life, but in fact, the greatest joy is found in repentance. Notice it with me in the text. Verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness. This joy and gladness phrase is a Hebrew phrase meaning the deepest of joys. Make me know what true, deep joy is. He goes on to say that the bones you have broken may rejoice. So David uses this figure of speech to refer to the entire person. He was under, under the collapse in his soul of the guilt that was weighing upon him. David was weighed down. You see, persistent, unconfessed sin is crushing. It weighs on the heart. It weighs on the mind. It causes depression and anxiety and fear and despair of the soul. But what does he say in verse 12? Restore what? Verse 12, restore the joy of your salvation. Now, it is worth pointing out that he does not say restore salvation. The one who is genuinely converted, the one who has come to Christ in faith and repentance is a child of God, and no man can pluck them out of his hand. David did not lose his salvation, but what he asked for is the restoration of the joy that comes with knowing God. And then he says, uphold me by your generous spirit. Now, the spirit abides with believers forever, but we can be guilty of grieving the spirit, of lying to him, of quenching the Spirit by deliberate disobedience. You see, the thing that we need to understand is that joy does not come by sweeping our sin under the rug, by, by being positive, by, 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 measure, by, by telling people not to feel guilty about their sin. It comes by dealing with our sin biblically, by repenting and seeking God's mercy. And so David calls out, don't cast me away from your presence, verse 11, create in me a clean heart. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. In verse 16, he says this, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would have given it. Now, David is not diminishing the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. What he's pointing, I mean, David was the king, right? He could brought up all the bulls in the kingdom. But what does he say God is seeking for? A broken spirit and a contrite heart, verse 17. So why is it that repentance brings joy? Because anytime we look to ourselves for salvation from sin, we are lacking. But verse 10 is the heart of David's psalm because it really expresses the reality of his concern. This is kind of the key verse in the whole passage, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. 
David knew that the inner person, the heart, was the source of his trouble. And that this, that this joy and blessing did not come from his own way. But God could work a miracle in his heart. The Puritan pastor of the 17th century, Thomas Watson, wrote a treatise on repentance with six ingredients to show what genuine repentance looks like. The six ingredients were this, sight of sin, sorrow over sin, confession of sin, shame of sin, hatred of sin, turning from sin. Now, verses 18 and 19, before we conclude, may seem a bit out of place to you. Build the walls of Jerusalem, that you should be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and the whole burnt offering. Um, some scholars actually think that perhaps verses 18 and 19 were added by David when this psalm made its way into the public canon, into the Psalter. Right? Because the rest of it is very intensely personal, and then verses 18 and 19 shift to kind of national attention. But they're important because it causes us to think about the national significance of a leader's sin. Sometimes people will use David as a means to excuse their favored politician's weaknesses. Well, nobody's perfect. After all, David... Like, have you read Psalm 51? Do we ever see that kind of humility, this kind of abject pleading for God's mercy from our political leaders? I think not. But, but really, that's not the biggest point of verses 18 and 19. The point is that people, a, a, an entire people, can be affected by their leader's sins. Sometimes our sins are individual, but sometimes they're so pervasive that, that national repentance is in order. Now, of course, America is not Israel. We don't have the same order of government or the same relationship with God, to be sure. But national repentance, I would just submit, is in order for our nation. But it must start with God's people. And so notice that this joy is so pervasive that it overflows. When God's people repent, it overflows to others. Notice verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted. And this is exactly what we saw when we looked together at Romans 3. When we read it together during our call to worship, that God is just. Sin must be judged. God is holy, yet he himself is the justifier. And we can't move away from the psalm without rejoicing in the fact that God has provided a way that we can be cleansed. And when we come with the prayer of verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. We know that God will cleanse us because of the blood of Jesus Christ who cleanses us from all sin. And so the scripture tells us if we confess our sin, He is faithful and He is just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'd ask you this morning, have you ever entered into a life of repentance by confessing your sin, repenting of your sin, and turning to Christ alone for salvation? My friend, if you've never come to that point where you have turned from yourself, where you have, you have turned from your sin and depended on Jesus Christ alone to save you from sin and hell, you can do that. 
This is the heart of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves those who come to him in faith and repentance. But as I referred to it earlier, becoming a Christian is entering into a life of repentance. Repentance is a key part of the Christian life, and and it, it, it never feels good. In fact, if it feels good, you're probably doing it wrong. But it is necessary. It is important, and it is the portal to true joy because it is the means by which we are cleansed day by day by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's what reminds us of our need of of grace, and it displays the growth in grace. And so I wonder how often do you and I pray this psalm? I have dates written in my Bible next to this psalm. I I hope that this psalm is one you come back to again and again, because you know what? We need it. We need to be a repenting people. I wonder how often do you, do you go through days, weeks, months without ever taking inventory of the ways in which you've sinned against God. I wonder how often do we get on our face before God, recognizing our own sinfulness and our own need for His grace, for His mercy. And by the time we're done, we're rejoicing. <coughs> that Jesus paid it all, that we can have forgiveness and joy, not because we're good, but because He is good. God's people find joy through repentance. Father, we thank You for Your goodness. We thank You for Your grace and for Your mercy that we have celebrated this morning. Lord, as we um, take these moments to observe who You are, I pray now, Lord, that You would 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 just uh, push deep within our hearts these truths, this prayer of David. I'm going to give you a moment to remain bowed before the Lord.